Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Primarily Context-Based. This podcast is a collaboration between CTO Craft and Skiller Whale, and it was inspired by the Q&A site Stack Overflow, where questions have a single right answer. And questions can be closed and archived because they're deemed to be primarily opinion-based. Well, we think that the most interesting questions often don't have a single right answer, and they are questions that are primarily context-based. In this podcast, we're going to take one of those questions, we'll talk about a range of answers to it and the context that makes each answer appropriate. My name's Howell Carver. I'm the CEO of Skiller Well. We do a unique form of training for tech teams called targeted capability training, which means that all of our training is individually personalized. It's delivered through hands-on sessions with a live expert, and it's delivered remotely in one-hour chunks. I was a CTO for about 10 years before starting this company. I ran dinners for tech leaders for three and a bit years. I was a CTO coach. And in all of those roles, I found that the same questions came up in different organizations, but with different answers every time. And that's because context is critical. Today, we're going to be talking about Kubernetes. And joining me for that discussion is John Topper from the Scale Factory. John, tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, Howell. Uh, I'm founder and CEO of the Scale Factory. We're an AWS consultancy founded in 2009. So we've been around a while, seen quite a lot of things. Uh, Generally, these days, we reduce the risk in building and scaling SaaS solutions on AWS. Businesses that partner with us gain the confidence to pursue new revenue streams and unlock bigger deals for more demanding customers. Um, We've used Kubernetes for uh, a few years now. Uh, We're a Kubernetes certified service provider. Um, and so we've uh, we've seen both the good and the bad of that platform. Excellent. And so that, that leads us nicely onto our topic today, which is, should I use Kubernetes? Kubernetes, uh, I believe, was originally released by Google based on their internal system for deploying s- software, Borg. It's a kind of, I think it's a pared down version of that. Uh, and it's a pretty comprehensive solution for doing deployment and is extremely popular. I think it's uh, something that you hear a lot about being in this world. There's a plenty of very well-known com- companies that use it and use it to great effect and talk about how well it scales for them. Um, John, what else would you add to give a kind of overview of what Kubernetes is and why this is an interesting question? Yeah, so I guess the maybe the the best way to to think about Kubernetes is that it is a it's a container orchestration system. So um, it it comes with a lot of of automation, sort of out of the box, to provide opinions about how your software, as long as it's container based, is deployed and scaled and load balanced and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's uh, It's got a very vibrant community behind it. The, the CNCF, the, the Cloud Native uh, Foundation, um, have a, a, a vast number of people supporting, uh, supporting the platform. Um, and uh, as you say, it's very popular. Maybe more popular than it deserves to be. I don't know. I guess we'll get into that ultimately. What is it great at? Why are the reasons these other companies are using it to such great effect? So um, I guess it, it's important to look at the context of, of where um, where Kubernetes came from as a thing. So when the the hype cycle started for this piece of software, it was um, in a time where if you wanted to run containers on your um, cloud platform or, or on your data center, you would broadly have to build something yourself to do that. So you'd maybe be running uh, running Docker or, or some of the sort of do- early versions of Docker Swarm, um, Docker Compose um, on your on your kit to 
to schedule uh, your your container workloads, but you'd all then have to sort of wrap all of that in your own automation and, and orchestration in order to start and stop and join them to load balances and all, all those sorts of bits and pieces. And if you wanted to automate that further, there were things like Mesosphere, which was this sort of um, fairly heavyweight platform um, with quite a lot of Java in it um, that was all kind of leaning on uh, on Zookeeper, which is a, a real beast to, to maintain as a, as a clustering platform. And so you you have these two, two choices. You either sort of homebrew something or you invest heavily in this really complicated thing. And Kubernetes kind of came along and said, hey, we can make that easier than Mesosphere does and take away some of the pain of, of, the, uh, of the, the orchestration that you're having to do yourselves. Um, so quite a compelling story in as far as it was offering to take away some of the heavy lifting that everybody was having to do themselves. And anything that, that offers that um, is, is pretty compelling in the ops space, I think. Like um, if, if you're running a business and you've got, I don't know, you, maybe you've got a hundred developers working for you and you've maybe got somewhere between five and 10 people running the platform if those five and ten five to ten people could instead be developing on your product because all of the opinions about how the platform runs has been taken care of for you you probably want to do that because your um your 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 business is in the in the market of doing whatever your business is it's not in the market of running platforms um and so it, it, it quickly got adopted by i guess um businesses that were willing to take some some um some technical risk people who people who had maybe seen that this is where things were going and had felt the pain of having to try and run docker based stuff on their own infrastructure um but um were looking to make some of that pain go away i guess um whether it lived up to to those expectations in the early days i think is probably debatable i think it does now <laughs> um and uh and i think those early adopters have we We've met a lot of, of the early Kubernetes adopters, and we've we've mopped up a few of their their problems. And I, I guess I should caveat that by saying we're a consultancy. People call us when they have problems, right? So there's a there's a selection bias, if you like, in the people that we deal with. So we see things when they're broken. We don't always see stuff when it's you know all working working fine. fine. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it, I mean, it sounds great. It sounds like such a it would be such a big load off. So should everyone be using Kubernetes? Uh, no. <laughs> I think is the bottom line. Um, like any piece of software, um, I, I, I quite like the, the fact your uh, your podcast is called uh, primarily context based because that that to me is classic consultant. Like the first thing you learn right after googling really quickly uh, as a consultant is that uh, the answer it depends is an important one to lean on, and <laughs> uh, and it depends is is absolutely relevant here. Um, so. I guess you know what are you doing? What are you building? What's what is what is the nature of your business? Um, what are the constraints you're working within? So Kubernetes works particularly well in a landscape where um, you have relatively complex service-based software. Um, so you you have a lot of distinct parts that you are probably building and maintaining on on different cadences, maybe in different teams. Um, it works particularly well for uh, businesses that have enough of that happening um, that they have a platform team to kind of work as a as a um, you know as a supporting function for kubernetes as a as a thing um, and uh, and it works pretty well um, in that environment 
under those circumstances. It doesn't work quite as well for monolithic software deployment. Like if you're if you're building an application that is mostly monolithic, then having to build provision care feed and water a, a Kubernetes cluster to run a, a monolith that is less complex than the platform you're deploying it onto, um, probably not very bright. Uh, if you don't have a platform team who can uh, who can look after Kubernetes as a platform on the behalf of your other developers, um, you're probably going to find that the the cognitive overhead of, of having to try and work with and run Kubernetes as well as develop features for your your whatever your business is doing um, is probably going to kill productivity. Um, and you may well find that uh, that you're you're burning sort of you know, a percentage of your developer time on that care and feeding. Um, so in those cases, there are probably better choices. But if you're building a microservices based platform um, with a, a larger team, it's definitely worth a look. Mm. One of the promises of Kubernetes always seems to be that it's a kind of it's configuration based so i define everything once and then just leave it to run so that effectively you get to set up your own kind of platform as a service like it's a kind of advanced heroku where all of the knobs and dials are uh, are there for me to tweak is that not the reality how much feeding and watering is required so kubernetes is a um there's something like 600,000 lines of code in it, right? It's, it's complex. It's big. There's a lot to it. Um, and it's constantly being worked on. It's, it's still iterating. It, it hasn't sort of settled down especially. Um, there are new releases of Kubernetes every quarter, uh, and the Kubernetes uh, maintainers won't support or don't support a version of Kubernetes more than a year old. So immediately you are in a landscape where where you are having to regularly patch and update your, your platform. In some cases, that patching uh, will change the APIs that you're using to deal with Kubernetes. So the tooling that you're using to, to configure it or the, the YAML that you're writing to configure it, um, that is subject to change. And it's been my experience in you know twenty years of doing this that that companies in general, if they don't have to commit engineering hours to maintenance activities, um, they definitely won't, and they won't realize that that's a problem until they get a data breach, everything falls on its ass, and they don't know what to do with it. Um, and so the the pace of release of, of Kubernetes means that you have to commit to that level of of maintenance out of the gates, right from day one. Mm. Um, there is there is no excuse. The, in the early days, before I mean t- today, you can buy a Kubernetes control plane from your cloud vendor, right, and a lot of that that pain um, is is taken away by Amazon or Google or whoever it is that you're paying. Um, but your interaction with with that um, that that platform still goes through those APIs that are, that are changing. You still have to adapt to the changes of the of the control plane. Right. So so your cloud vendor, if you if you're buying Kubernetes from AWS or or Google or whatever, um, the cloud vendor is is replacing uh, is providing uh, sort of management of the control plane for you. In the old days, um, it used to be the case that the early adopters of, of Kubernetes would deploy it into the cloud, but without a managed Kubernetes offering. So they'd use this thing called COPS, which is the sort of it was the state of the art, but it was essentially a janky set of shell scripts, and uh, and it would do upgrades in place. And you know, if you were lucky, sometimes it would work. Um, and so so there, there was immediate 
pain in in deploying the thing in the first place because you're kind of given this tool that says hey i'm a deploy tool for kubernetes and you sort of poke some values into a shell script and you watch it run and if you're lucky you get a a kubernetes up and and maybe you have to do a bit of debugging around it or you have to replace some certificates or or something like that but there your, your kubernetes is running and you can start putting your applications into it now businesses that have a certain tolerance for risk um don't really pay that much attention to the ongoing operational question of their software uh, at that point. Like they're, they're optim- There's a mean time to hello world question. I blogged about this recently. Right? The mean time to hello world for a COPS-based Kubernetes cluster is probably about best case 24 hours, 48 hours. You've got this thing up and running. Um, you've got a, a hello world container up, up in Kubernetes. Great, let's put it in production, right? Um, Problem with that, COPS out of the gate had, uh, I think, certificate expiry of 12 months. So 12 months in, everybody's COPS clusters just stopped working because the certificates that they deployed with COPS had expired and nobody knew what to do with it because the logs were quite obtuse and people were not looking at logs anyway because operations Mm. is hard. Um, So... Then you'd kind of go through this cycle of this panic cycle of okay, well we need to upgrade to the latest version. So you try and use COPS to upgrade to the latest version, um, and it goes terribly wrong and takes your infrastructure out for another twenty four hours until you figure out what's going on with the help of of Stack Overflow probably. Um, and so you kind of back the hell away from it once it's up and running, and go okay, it's fine now. I'm not going to touch it. Um, and with the the availability now of um, of of cloud vendors selling managed Kubernetes solutions, a lot of that has gone away, but there are still some of those solutions out there running in in the wild. And that's quite frightening because those, those things are, you know, two years old and contain two year old security vulnerabilities. And that, that's mm-hmm. risky. Um, so you, you immediately have to come, if you're, whatever you're running in your infrastructure, you have to commit to understanding its security constraints, how it's operated, where it logs, what things need need feeding and watering periodically. You've got to find a way to rehearse those things. You've got to try those out in a in a safe environment. Make sure that all works in your in your production environment. And businesses don't do that. Like customers that that adopt technology because it's cool are not the type of businesses that are also thinking about the longevity of their operational story. And that is still true now in in 2021, um, as mm. it was in 2009 when we first started doing this. It's funny often in the kind of infrastructure and ops world, people talk about servers as pets versus servers as cattle. And it feels like what you're saying is that Kubernetes lets you treat your servers as cattle, but makes your infrastructure a particularly um, capricious pet. <laughs> I, that's pro- I think... I think I'm probably saying that that was true of home, like hand-rolled Kubernetes clusters. That's less true in the um, in the sort of um, you know, if you buy EKS from Amazon, for example, standing up a control plane is a couple of clicks in the console or some lines of, of Terraform, um, and the the upgrade process is Amazon will tell you there's a new version of the control plane available. Would you like to use it? And and that's sort of taken care of and, and very well practiced by the people that are building and maintaining EKS. Right, the power of power of cloud infrastructure is that there's enough of these things running in some data center that you never have to visit uh, that uh, there is value in Amazon becoming experts in managing those upgrades cleanly. And so they do that on your behalf. Um, but what, uh, what is still true is that 
the the interfaces you're talking to in that um, in that cluster will change as the as the versions uh, change. Uh, the Kubernetes crowd do make some assertions about when things will be deprecated and you know what 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 beta means and and what and what version that thing's going to go away at. So you can keep up with it, but there's very little business value as a developer in making sure that your software stops using a deprecated interface um, as opposed to making sure that you've added the latest feature that your customers are asking for. Um, and so all the, the the context that you need to be coming into this with is, is do I want to be investing in running a platform for my developers to deliver their software onto, or should I choose a different option? And have the cloud vendor run more of my platform for me. And that, that I think is the mm-hmm. 2021 decision. Is is do I run this or does the do, do I want responsibility for my platform or what do I want to give more of it to Amazon? Ultimately, I'm saying Amazon because we're an AWS partner. There are other cloud vendors available, obviously, but uh, my my uh, allegiances and uh, familiarity, in fact, uh, lies almost entirely with AWS. John, can you explain what some of the alternatives to Kubernetes are and why people would use those? Sure. So um, my experience is AWS. So we'll talk about the, the AWS options in that landscape. Um, if you think of Kubernetes as a as a container orchestration platform, um, and you're looking for uh, something that also allows you to run containers um, that isn't Kubernetes, then AWS have a, a few options. Um, there's uh, AWS Fargate, which is um, they call it a serverless uh, container. Uh, container deployment platform or container orchestration platform. Um, and what they mean by that is that you're not responsible for an operating system anywhere. So you're not having to run nodes on which your containers run. Uh, that's all taken care of by the fabric of the platform. So um, in my view, slightly superior to running uh, EKS yourself because uh, Fargate takes care of all of the the uh, the platform stuff for you, um, but it also does you know has de- deployment uh, deployment options around sort of canaries and, and blue green deployments. Lets you uh, target load balancers at your at your containers. There's service discovery platforms. So uh, as a sort of relatively like for like comparison, I think we're, when we're talking to teams, um, the options are it's either Kubernetes or it's Fargate in that domain. Um, there are other options as well. E- ECS um, is the sort of the earlier version of the of the container platform that uh, that AWS released. Um, but in that case, you do have to run the nodes on which the containers operate. Um, so that's that's not as um, not as sort of hands off, if you like. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's probably also important to mention things like the the serverless platforms of Lambda um, will allow you now to run code that is packaged as containers as of reInvent last year, um, but uh, but isn't quite the same as a container orchestration platform. The the mechanics of it are quite different. Mm, got it. So then I guess the question is. Why should people choose Kubernetes when people are making that that decision? What what is it that sways you towards Kubernetes in in an individual case? So we would look at um, software architecture. So uh, if the if the application that's being built is definitely service oriented and probably you know multiple small services rather than you know small number of big services uh, that would that would be a sort of clear indicator that that it was on the table as an option um if we had a uh, site of the customer having um agreed that they wish to invest in 
that capability as something to to learn uh, within a platform team and i think we we would uh, we would guide in a consultancy engagement guide the cto of that business to an understanding of what is involved what is required um i think if you're going to run uh, kubernetes you you're your DevOps practice needs to be pretty tight because you need to be, um, you know, properly managing deployments and logging and, and all, all the kind of good stuff that, that DevOps taught us and that everyone still gets wrong. Um, but the, there has to be a conscious decision to invest in that in that platform choice. Um, and uh, and in particular, if if that platform team would be supporting multiple other delivery teams, or if in future there is a desire to have multiple delivery teams. There's like a Conway's law aspect to this. So if you are mm-hmm. going, to, if, if you wish to design your organization such that you can have multiple delivery teams all feeding into this one platform, which is supported by a platform team, then Kubernetes is a great enabler for that kind of, uh, for that kind of practice. Uh, but we would mm. typically talk customers out of Kubernetes if those things were not true, um, or if we thought that um, the, the, um, uh, the willingness to invest in uh, in properly operating a platform was not there. Got it. Uh, and for anyone listening who might not have come across Conway's Law before, it's the idea that the the product and the kind of design artifacts that come out of a team are a mirror of the team's communication structure. Right. So cho- choosing Kubernetes as a reverse Conway's Law maneuver, um, I think, is what uh, Martin <laughs> Fowler would refer to it. So you're you're, bake- you're making um, technology decisions to force a particular organizational layout in order to get the benefits of that that layout, um, and that's pretty powerful. And so, I mean, that, that's what Amazon did in the early days when um, the original Amazon.com was a big old monolith, um, and then uh, Jeff Bezos um, insisted that everything be split up into two pizza teams, and those two pizza teams should be able to build software without communicating with each other that whole sort of drive towards services um mm. that sort of maneuver is what's allowed amazon to scale um to the point that they have um but you know primarily context-based or in consultancy terms it depends you might not never get there you might might not ever get there like it may well be the case that your your business is never going to scale to that point and and so making decisions now about an organizational structure that you might never need and that might add sufficient overhead immediately to prevent you getting to the point where you could scale um, is something to, to do, not lightly. Mm. And I think that's that was a question I wanted to ask you, actually, that one of the things I see is people who see that Google use a system akin to Kubernetes, know that Amazon work with a huge number of services, Kubernetes has been adopted by Airbnb, Monzo, Ocado, Spotify, Booking.com, Reddit. And they think, well, we want to scale. We want to be ready for scale. We're anticipating having huge traffic a year from now. We want to have lots of small services. And we know we're going to want something like Kubernetes in a year. So why don't we adopt it now? And and you've said that the, uh, the adoption of something like Kubernetes might actually prevent them from getting to that scale. So I guess the question is, what goes wrong? When is it a terrible idea? And what what are the kind of horror stories you've seen? So the terrible idea implementations are, um, uh, on the one hand, sort of where, where it's been adopted, where it's not necessary, right? So so you kind of, you're a, you're a startup, you have a team of a certain size, and then you find that actually three of your 10 developers are spending, they've spent six months between them 
trying to get a working Kubernetes uh, platform up and running. Um, and all they've really done is is the hello world basics. So on the surface, it looks like um, everything's fine. But unless you're an operationally minded CTO or you have um, you know, advisors like the Scale Factory around to sort of ask smart questions about operations, um, then you may well find that what you've done is wasted one and a half person years on doing something that had no business value badly, right? And so um, if you're if you're bootstrapped or you're in, in your sort of seed round phase, um, that is enough to kill you potentially. Right? If you if you haven't spent all of your time actually building product, you, know, you could have spent those eighteen person months building out some building out your Rails app on Heroku or whatever it is to prove that you you have a market. You didn't need to be doing all that stuff on on Kubernetes at that point, um, and in fact, uh, prematurely splitting your system into into microservices has probably demonstrated that what you did by accident was hire a team of people who don't work very well together. Right, the 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 sort of uh, the microservices story can can often be about mitigating arguments in a team we want to use haskell or scala or whatever like oh well, we know python and and sort of well like, let's do both because microservices let us run you know the, a service in the most appropriate language so let's do that and now you just made a terrible mess for yourself so we've seen that sort of thing go on um so i i guess we probably haven't got to the point we, we businesses that, that are in that position probably are not the businesses that call us for help because by that time they've run out of money and they, they can't they can't go anywhere with it um so that's one horror story the other horror story is related in that it starts like that um but then it carries on for a couple of years with that kubernetes deployment being at the heart of a, a growing business that is actually making money um but where over time um Obviously, we've we've already discovered that they haven't patched it, right? So this is still a two years old version of, of the of the software. Um, it's uh, it's it's running. Um, applications are, are on there. Customers are, are transacting uh, transacting their their stuff through it. Um, but then there's a fault, and the fault starts kind of you know like as an instability, and then sort of becomes a real problem. And after a few weeks of of rebooting things randomly and guessing they'll call someone like us in to go and have a look and then you sort of you lift the hood and and not only is it a tangled mess um but it's transacting enough revenue that you can't easily just go you know what let's just take a couple of days and figure this out you actually have to do a a sort of uh, a very gentle open heart surgery on it to stabilize what's there so that it's not blowing up every day um and then start looking at well what do we do next? Um, is that we deploy a best practices solution over here on EKS and migrate workloads to it? Um, or do we entirely replatform this and, and think about it as a Fargate problem or a, a Lambda's problem or something? Um, and that that's often the result of teams who are not operationally minded um, build, building a sort of MVP cluster getting an app apparently working on it and calling that done. And we need to stop this. Right? As an industry, we need to stop optimizing for things that look about right. <clears throat> uh, and we need to start embedding thinking about patching and security constraints and 
operations and you know all of the all the kind of good opera the boring operational stuff that is risk reju- risk reduction activity and um, we need to as ctos learn that we have to invest in this alongside feature development because otherwise we will always screw ourselves in some fashion awesome and that seems like an excellent point to end on i, I feel like the main things i've taken away john and i want to check this with you are that using Kubernetes is a thing to make a conscious decision about investing in when you get to a point where you can afford to have a dedicated platform team that becomes the thing that your developers build for rather than building for a specific cloud provider that they would learn Kubernetes instead of that cloud provider. Um, and that if you make that decision wrong, uh, you you risk regretting it. I think that's a I think that's a fair summation of of, of my my position. Um, I think I would also say that um, we we sort of haven't gone into the into the multi cloud discussion, but there's a sort of um, there's an implied you know if if your teams are only learning Kubernetes, then they could deploy their solution on any cloud, um, and that is broadly speaking marketing speak rather than reality. Um, so choosing Kubernetes because you think you might one day want to sell a solution to somebody who wants it on Google rather than Amazon, or or this sort of myth that um, e-commerce businesses probably shouldn't be on Amazon because AWS are looking in their data and you know taking their business, um, like that that's that is myth. Um, building a unless your application is is a completely stateless. It only runs containers, doesn't have any requirement for storage or, or other other services. Um, then you're uh, you're always going to have to interact with the things that are native to a particular cloud every time you go near it. So we're, we're not we we're definitely sort of not recommending running um, stateful workloads on Kubernetes. You would almost always consume your databases and storage, etc., from the cloud vendors database and storage product range um, and so immediately you've got this kind of thing where it looks like it might be multi-cloudable because you're just talking kubernetes apis but realistically um, that migration it would would not be straightforward it would be equivalent to building the same thing a second time hmm. god it makes sense sounds like the more stateful parts of your application probably shouldn't go on kubernetes anyway and then maybe it's it's the more state free parts that you would deploy there. Is that right? That that's yeah. That that would be our take. So in in an AWS landscape, uh, your containers are just running your applications um, and and things that rely on storage. So your database engines and so forth. You want to give that to RDS to run um, because the otherwise you're essentially running your own database cluster and we've long since got over that fallacy um so uh, but at, at that point the people running your kubernetes cluster have to understand the relationship between the application components and the data stores and in some cases um provisioning those database uh services in, in rds using primitives provided by Kubernetes. And so that Im- immediately makes it not very portable to another cloud because RDS doesn't look the same as whatever Google call their cloud database or whatever Microsoft call their cloud database. So the, mm-hmm. the idea that you would adopt Kubernetes because you want to be portable is, in my view, not a thing that actually works in real life. Mm. Got it. 
like the the preferences of everyone I've ever known who gets deep into the world of infrastructure and operations are let's use the thing that I hate least. Yes. And it's like the <laughs> thing I have less least ranting to do about. Right. And so the measure of Kubernetes is not did you dislike it, but how much did you dislike it relative <laughs> to your dislike for other things? I, I think there's yeah, there's definitely an element of that. There's there's a sort of it 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 comes back to my kind of boring technology preference, right? Kubernetes yeah. is still not quite boring enough, yeah. um, because it's it's still biting people, and at the point at which it stops biting people, then it will be a great choice for more workloads, and thereafter fewer people will want to use it because it's not biting them, right? <laughs> it's like technologists are the people who go and like. Uh, Oh, I'll eat the naga chili straight from the plants. <laughs> um, oh, why is it burning me? It's quite a. <laughs> if only there was somewhere I could have known that right. this incredibly hot chili would hurt my mouth. Exactly. Yeah. There's just so much of that. It's an unwillingness. You know, there's so much um, CV padding that goes on that the, excite- the excitement and the novelty is almost the point. And as an mm. operations person, the excitement and novelty is absolutely not the point. Because the more exciting and novel something is, the more risk you carry and more people could do with understanding risk than actually manage it. And I don't think as CTOs, we do a good job of encouraging our teams to think about risk management in a way that is business appropriate. I think we, we struggle with mm. getting getting developers to think about business outcomes as a whole, but business outcomes as they relate to risk is even more difficult because you're essentially asking people to think about worst case scenarios and people don't like doing that. Yeah. I think there's also something in it being, you know, there's there's the, the people who are excited to use it because it's kind of hot and cool and new. And it seems there's something really attractive about the idea of abstracting away all of your infrastructure and your kind of management of it into just some YAML files. Like that's, that's a dev dream right there. <laughs> yeah. um, of course, the yeah, the person who has the pager and is on on duty at two a.m. might see that differently. Yes, yeah, and in the in the teams that we see who have that sort of platform team dev team split, the um, the app teams have a pager and the platform teams have a pager, and so mm. the the activity is that the platform will page someone whose app looks to be misbehaving, and someone on that app team will triage it and might need to wake up a different app team if there's a dependency issue. And the microservices thing as a whole, right, is already adding complexity. Now you add this other exciting new thing with all these interesting failure modes to the mix, and you've got new exciting ways for for people to get woken up at night. It's uh, pretty pretty challenging. I think the, the FT learned that what they should have done is built every microservice to the same standard in the same language following the same templates. And mm. they hadn't. I think the uh, the people at uh, one of the taxi-related companies learnt that early on and they had a much better time because at, at the same scale, right. everything was easier to manage because you could always debug somebody else's stuff because it was in a language you understood, in a framework you understood, you'd agree what the documentation looked like. So you could easily be on call for multiple things because it, the, mm. there was an agreed approach. Fantastic. Thanks, John. So it sounds like Kubernetes is something you'd recommend when people have teams big enough to have a separate platform team when they want to be cloud agnostic, but not to be used for stateful stuff. I hope this has been a really helpful conversation and I'm really grateful to you, John, for helping inform it. People can find John if they would like to at www.scalefactory.com. And that is it for this week's episode. 
Next time, we will be talking about the right way to do Agile with Douglas Squirrel. Goodbye for now. <laughs>